Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I got to know Anand Iyer, Chief Strategy Officer of WellDoc, as he was instrumental in getting the Digital Therapeutics Alliance up and running. Today, I continue with the early trailblazers of the DTX industry, Eddie Martucci, who is CEO and founder of Akili Interactive, which has taken a super interesting go-to-market approach. But before we dive in, I very briefly met Eddie at a small event during a JP Morgan conference in San Francisco years ago. Eddie's energy and passion for the product exuded as he was holding a tablet and always gathered a crowd around him showing early versions of a game that is now an actual digital therapy. And now we jump to my conversation with Eddie. I am here with Eddie Martucci, co-founder and CEO of Akili Interactive. Welcome, Eddie, and please tell our listeners a little bit of who you are and what was the impetus to even create Akili. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here, happy to talk to you. Um, I guess my background is really scientific in nature. I'm a research scientist by training, did a PhD in biochemistry and biophysics. Most of my colleagues in grad school went on to lead research at different drug companies or biotech. I was inspired with the translation phase, which taking cutting edge science and moving that quickly into products. And so I had the opportunity and the fortune to work at a place called Pure Tech Health, which is a really unique organization that takes cutting edge science and tries to build companies or invest in programs. And I came right at the time where you were having this digital kind of revolution in in consumerism and finance and not quite yet in healthcare. And so I guess my, my passion for cutting edge science and then seeing where the world was going it, you know, the two things met really clearly and Achilles came from just a, a recognition that in trying to make a new type of medicine for the brain specifically, where you have these large unmet needs that have existed for decades and that, you know, molecular medicine has gotten part of the way there, but not all the way there, that technology could be the best vehicle to provide a totally new orthogonal approach. And so that's where we started is there's a need, there's a new modality, which is digital technology. And we got excited, I guess, most of our background being in, in therapeutic development, we got excited to say, let's not just assist medicine, let's actually make the medicine through software. And that was around, I think if I looked on uh, some of the sources, it's about 2012, right? That's when you guys... Yeah, when we formally incorporated, um, we'd been honestly looking at technologies and approaches to target the brain for, you know, I'd say a year to 18 months before that though. Okay. And and so that was kind of, a, I would call it as almost a spin up or spin out or an investment just to, for our listeners to understand the pure tech component to this. Sure. Yeah. I, I founded the company with folks inside pure tech. Okay. Um, and so pure tech was the earliest shareholder and supporter and board member. And we still have a great relationship. And over time, um, we've diversified our investor list and and um, done a couple of rounds of venture funding. And so now there's we have a large minority investor sheet, which sets us up for the future. So as you were sitting there, and, and that was in Boston or just to orient ge- geographically? Well, it was, it was Boston, although uh, I'll, if we go through the little bit of the founding, we were a multi-geography company from like the first couple employees because we were, were melding healthcare and technology. And so we actually... One of my first employees was in San Francisco. And so we had a two coast office when I think we had three people, which is a little crazy, but. Yeah, I just wasn't sure if I'm saying Boston because, you know, I grew up in New York, so I, I wasn't sure if I'm pronouncing <laughs> it correctly. So like the Boston? No, I, well, yeah. I grew up in Connecticut closer to you. So Boston, <laughs> right to me. 
Cool. Um, so obviously, I mean, especially when you're doing the investment and, you know, spinning things up, there is a business hypothesis to this. And I'm sure kind of even the words combined digital therapeutic, you know, might have been getting on that scene as we've been discovering in some previous episodes. What was the original business hypothesis, right? So I think there's a, a bunch of cool tech, your hypothesis from, you know, 18 to 20 months beforehand, but from a purely business hypothesis perspective, what was it? And how much has it changed, if at all? It's a great question. We're probably one of these rare startups where the core business hypothesis hasn't changed really at all. Um, a lot of the implementation has. A lot of how we saw the business model rolling out has changed dramatically. So I can talk about that. But the core business hypothesis for us is that we said we want the software itself, in and of itself, just software, to be powerful enough that it can be a prescribable treatment. That's it. Yep. So we we founded, I think we were one of the earliest companies that said, you know, software can should be the medicine if you invest in it and find the right technology. I think we put a stake in the ground in 2013 saying, you know, we're going to go try to chart down the FDA path. This is before anyone had done that and before we had even talked to FDA, quite frankly. So we were a little, little brazen. But that was, I guess, our reason for existence is we said we want to create truly a new medicine category where you have a piece of software that is being prescribed and in and of itself has efficacy and has the type of effectiveness in patients that justifies it being used, you know, alongside any other type of medicine that has not changed how we think about scaling, how we think about the delivery. A lot of that has evolved over time. So I want to demystify for our listeners, because to many digital therapeutics, you know, what is really? So if you can maybe just describe actually, you know, how do I as a, as a patient or a health consumer actually, quote unquote, consume this prescription, right? So just walk us through the user experience a bit. Sure. And no, I'm, I'm glad you're pausing on that. A lot of people forget to ask that question and then never quite have a concrete grasp of what we're talking about. It's also important because I think sometimes the you know media or the press can cover the lowest common denominator. In our case, it's like, oh, it's a game that's good for you, you know, and mm -hmm. so it's just a video game. So the truth is, this is a this is a treatment system that includes at its core a therapeutic through software. And so in our case, what we target is cognitive dysfunction across different diseases. Our first product that's cleared by the FDA is a treatment for children with ADHD, focusing on attention function. What it is, is fast-paced sensory stimulation and motor stimulation, but that's not how the patient sees it. What the patient sees is that they're coming into a game experience where they're you know, doing something that feels very familiar. They're driving something down a road and they're interacting with things in the scene and they're making choices. So it's very uh, narratorized, if you will, mm -hmm. into the experience. And so every moment of the experience is adapting to the individual and they're, but they're collecting something. They have a goal, they're having fun, but what's happening is second by second, the stimulation and the choices they're making are stressing the prefrontal cortex of the brain in a very specific way. So we have, you know, at this point we have, I think four or five um, peer reviewed publications showing the effects of our technology on the frontal lobe over a month of treatment. So, but the patient experience, like our, our design ethos was for the patient using this we want in the moment of the experience for people to forget that they're taking medicine, forget that they're trying to get better. We want them to just have fun. And I think that's something that hasn't yet been achieved in digital health, for sure. I think it hasn't been achieved in areas like uh, educational software, right? And all these areas, 
people still feel like they're, they know in the moment they're doing math <laughs> or they yeah. know in the moment they're doing behavioral therapy because they have to like focus on X, Y, and Z strategies. I guess what excited us is, can you have someone get a treatment that's so, I guess, intuitive and implicit that they can just be having fun? Now that's just the treatment that sits in the patient's hands because the broader experience here, um, when I say this is a treatment system, is one of the beauties of digital is we have so much data and we have the ability to connect applications. So what we also do is we deliver, in the case of ADHD, for parents and for teachers, we deliver applications, you know, mobile applications and web-based portals where they're logging their own experiential data as a caregiver, right, of what they're seeing in their child. And then that data plus the data from the game in the child's hand is all coming together to give a really rich view of a child that is pretty transformationally different. You know, historically in pediatric behavioral conditions, you've got like a single data point over a month or two. A doctor mm -hmm. says, hey, how'd it go over the last few months? And a parent tries to remember. Here, we're getting daily data points from both parent and child. And in the case of the child, we're getting massive amounts of data because it's coming from the game. So this is really a, a tech forward or a tech first interaction. But what it does is it enables a rich set of data that the humans, the mom and the child or the dad and the child can have a better conversation. And that family unit can have a better conversation with their doctor. I mean, you know, what you guys have built over these years is amazing. And of course, there's, even though you have tons of peer reviewed and you got now the FDA approval, which we'll talk about, I guess part of what I also want to maybe peel the onion on, I don't think anybody have thought about having a whole treatment system that's based on a gaming technology in the front end beforehand and the complexities that go in even to prove that to the FDA. But also, if you think about it on the molecular side, there's active ingredients. So what are the implications of a digital therapeutic, right? And how do you evaluate it? And again, I'll just use an example of, for me, color blue uh, might calm me and you know, red uh, in the game might drive me crazy. So those are active ingredients as well. So can you talk a little bit about the process of active ingredients and measurements when it comes to a digital therapeutic like yourself? Sure. Yeah. It's one of the things I'm most excited about. I think one of the kind of the first version or some of, maybe still it's the dominant version of digital therapies are taking things that have existed in the past, like, you know, human interactions or step-by-step -step guides of how to deal with a problem and they're digitizing those. And so they're less based on some sort of active mechanism and more based on tried and true, you know, techniques or strategies to, to help someone with a problem. And that's great. What we're most excited about, what I'm personally have always been most excited about is can software have a direct and predictable impact on physiology? So what we do is that our very specific sensory motor stimulus, when done in our game format and with the algorithms that calibrate the difficulty second by second, it activates a very specific midline prefrontal cortical section of the brain. You can mm -hmm. see the activation light up when you measure it, and it leads to coherence changes to other parts of the brain. But that's just, you know, that's one really narrow or specific way that active ingredients can be encoded into software. What I'm excited about is, you know, we have our we have other technologies in R&D at Achilles that are targeting different brain regions based on the task, where they're integrating physical activity along with cognitive demands. You have other companies out there now that are experimenting with light pulse waves. Uh, you have some companies experimenting with very specific sound entrainments. I think all of these, there's a massive spectrum of, I think, what digital therapeutics will bring to the world that will help us rethink 
you know, what digital does to us in a predictable way. It's funny because if you actually step back, we know that this is all true. You know, we have, you listen to a song and you can have an amazing emotional experience, right? You, uh, you have a frightening, you know, moment in, in life and it can actually change you forever. Um, so we know that experiences are powerful. Especially when I think I'm dropping my phone and it's going to crack, right? No. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I mean, talk about yeah. frightening. All you have to do is look at anything that pops up on your phone today and you're probably frightened. Yep. But I think the, the beauty of digital therapeutics is we're taking all these things that we know vaguely have a pretty powerful effect on the body and the brain, um, but we're finally harnessing them into predictable, specific algorithms. I think what we do is, is kind of the tip of the iceberg, quite frankly, both for Achilles, but I expect dozens of companies in the next few years coming out with very new things. You know, I mentioned stuff that's maybe a little more obvious, like light stimulation and sound stimulation, but I believe we're going to see in the same way that the pharmaceutical industry, you know, we could never predict 30 years ago, all of the different physiological mechanisms that are targeted through molecules. I think we're going to see the exact same thing through digital in the next decade. So as we're talking about, I'll say, deploying an active ingredients, um, again, part of the FDA process, you know, when we talk about a molecule, you know, it goes through rigorous clinical trials, just like yourselves. Um, but then what happens is for you or as a piece of software, you may have changes even three or six months later. To me, it's a little bit even just super interesting to understand what is that process with, uh, with the FDA? Where do you go from here as you roll out new versions? And yeah, I think educating our listeners to this would be super interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely right that it's one of the most, I would call it like blessing and a curse. A curse because there's a lot of fear around it because this is new in the industry. So a lot of companies wrestle with this and, and some of the earliest technologies in AI ran up into a little bit of a wall where there wasn't actually an understanding that AI adapts over time. So that type of thing scares people. So that's the curse part. The blessing is this is exactly why digital can be amazing. And so as long as we recognize it, not only, you know, I think we always tend to think in a fear mindset, like, oh my gosh, if something changes, it might hurt someone or hurt the efficacy. But, you know, from a pure statistical point of view, you should take the full view that if that can happen, then if you harness it right, it also can potentially make it safer, right? You can change things that optimize the experience that lead to better safety and efficacy. What I would say is versus where we first started when you know FDA was first hearing about technologies like ours and companies like ours to where we are today, the FDA has taken a leadership position in telling the industry that not only do they accept, they understand and they want to enable digital software, digital treatments to actually fully live up to their promise, which means they have to adapt. So the way we handle that is our, our approved treatments are the core algorithms within. And so even within our trials, even within the data submitted to the FDA, patients there were all getting slightly different versions of the product because it was adapting for them. So that's like the first level, the first foundational level that this medicine is different and changes. And going forward, you know, we've, I think every company has slightly different approaches. We have a whole um, engineering quality system that basically is using models of our algorithms to show that when users interact, something has either not changed or it has changed. And if it has changed dramatically, then obviously we have to have a new submission or test that. This is where, again, digital, you have a lot more at your disposal. In some ways, you don't have to pause if you think something's different and go back to a year-long clinical trial 
you actually have enough data that you can almost in real time assess if the change has uh, impacted the core algorithm. So FDA, I would say, is very open to that. They're pushing, in fact, they've said publicly, they want companies like ours to be iterating software over time. And so I think it's a misconception that, you know, you have to lock a piece of software and it can never change. That's that's actually um, even at the highest levels of, of the agency and regulatory frameworks, there's there's a strong openness to how digital is going to evolve. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. Okay, here's my question. Can you walk us through the decision to launch a version of Endeavor RX pre-FDA market authorization during the pandemic and following the FDA's temporary deregulatory action around medical devices like Endeavor? And as part of that decision-making, you know, I'm really curious, did you see any risk in going for that launch? Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's a great question. I think a lot of people have looked to us and and were curious on how and why we made the decision. We actually launched the product under COVID, I think less than six business days from, from when the guidance came out. And to be clear, we did not have advance notice from the FDA. We were not in any even though we were far down the path on our on our Endeavor RX full regulatory package, we were not made aware early. So it was a decision that we we looked at and we quickly decided that this was an opportunity for our treatment, which in our case had already gone through clinical trials. The FDA was very aware of our data. We knew it could help people. It had the validation. And especially in our markets, you know, these are families dealing with school and services shutting down. We felt like it was the right thing to do. So from our perspective, it was driven almost entirely by, we have a treatment that works and that helps people, and we can put this out and help families in the moment. We built the company to help people. So that was the driving force. I will say it would be disingenuous of me to say there is a, uh, a secondary benefit there, which was not lost on us, that it was a great opportunity to learn more about the treatment on the market, what's resonating, what's not, and how we can better serve patients when we have the full you know, product, full approval, and, and are launching our full business model. So that was a benefit. Um, the risks, you know, we, we looked at risks. I, I think there's more risk for a company in, in a scenario like that if you're not intending to to really follow through with a commercial launch. Cause it does take money and resources and a whole lot of time and sleepless nights to mobilize a commercial platform quickly. So our team, you know, was, was round the clock for a week. And then for the weeks after that serving, you know, the incoming interest and, and product distribution, massively risky if you are not going to follow through and, you know, get an approval or if you don't have the data and therefore whenever that temporary, you know, emergency order lifts, all of a sudden you're back at square one. So, but in our case, we have the data, we had already built the, you know, internal foundation of the commercial model. Um, and so for us, it was a pretty straightforward decision. Yeah, and I'm gonna jump in here. So let's go back to, um, you know, commercial model and uh, to the extent you can talk about the pricing. I know you guys priced it around 450 bucks. And we actually started talking about that while your hypothesis for the actual business has not changed, uh, AKA prescribable software, 
your channel strategy has. So it's a combination, let's peel the onion on the pricing to the extent you can, and maybe your journey through the channel strategy. Sure. Yeah, the the pricing strategy is pretty straightforward. We weren't we weren't doing um, you know any secret sauce here. Our perspective is there's a range about a 10x range of costs of treatments in the system for ADHD and similar conditions. What we looked at are the treatments that are uh, either prescribed or recommended. So pharmaceuticals and behavioral therapy that uh, ADHD patients routinely use for the type of uh, outcomes that we can offer. And then we tried to price directly in the middle of that. So where we're pricing at 450 for a three month prescription, um, you know, or $150 a month is pretty much uh, right down the fairway of what, you know, is average on average being paid for um, in the drug or behavioral therapy space by insurance, healthcare system, et cetera. And so that, that was really our thought is, yes, we think there's some benefits to digital therapeutics that go far beyond what today's medicine does. But we also know there's some things that today's medicine does that digital therapeutics won't do. So our point was not to have a, a free business model, which would never work. And, uh, and also not to price, you know, higher than what's out there today, because we just think it's fair to fit within the existing frameworks. In terms of the channel strategy, you know, the things that have changed for us over time, when uh, I'll be honest, when, when I was first planning this and we were running trials and I was thinking about what's the beauty and the market reaction to this new class of medicine, I was very much in the typical pharma mindset. Right. So I was thinking, okay, we'll, we'll have to have a few hundred sales reps and we'll be, you know, mm -hmm. flooding the market and, you know, whatever the product is, we're just going to push it day one and try to get max and, you know, cover the globe. Um, that has changed pretty dramatically for a few reasons. One on looking at it deeper, we felt like it was an extremely inefficient strategy from a resource and spend perspective in the same way pharma, you know, many times sees that it's inefficient especially given our technology resonates in a way that it doesn't need a heavy sales push in the same way. The other important piece is I think we fully have embraced now that our technology, like many other technologies, it relates to the question you asked earlier about iteration. Everything about our model can change related to feedback and related yep. to how patients and doctors are experiencing our process. So we actually swung nearly 180 degrees in the other direction from a kind of big bang pharma launch and have instead been pursuing these smaller, more targeted tests where we're seeing live patients come through, live prescriptions come through, full payment cycle, full use cycle, and we're adapting and iterating um, because we've decided we want to own the model. And so for us, that meant start in a lean way and grow over time. And again, I'm just going to jump back to the cost of, to your point, uh, you priced it somewhere in the middle. Uh, from a reimbursement perspective, and maybe touch on PBMs and the lovely formularies. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the first thing that you recognize that I'm not sure all listeners will, is that digital therapeutics are medical devices regulatorily. And the difference in the U.S. between medical devices and drugs is medical devices do not have automatic coverage. Drugs have automatic coverage. Now, they don't have to be put on the top tier formularies. Of course, they can be pushed down and held back. But there is at least that first bar. Digital therapeutics have yet one more bar at the foundational level, which is just getting coverage at all. So I think there is work to be done for our industry in making sure that that is as seamless as possible following approvals. So we're, of course, working on that. 
we've already seen, and I think it's owing to, you know, the, the path our product has been down, but also probably the change in the world related to mental health and digital technologies. We're already seeing some low level initial, you know, one-off patient coverage through insurance, which is really encouraging, you know, historically in digital, it's like, you don't get a single thing, uh, engagement with insurance until you, you know, do the years to sign a contract, but we're seeing something a little different in the early days of our launch, which is excellent. I would say our strategy is we want to be flexible. So we know that in some insurers see digital fitting a little easier through pharmacy benefits, and we're seeing some of that. And then some insurers still see it as a medical benefit. Um, and that's not off the table. What we are trying to do with a number of other companies is actually establish categories for digital therapeutics that are standalone so that people don't have to think, does this shove into A or B? This can be a C. It's its own yep. pillar. And so there's work going on at the legislative level here in the U.S. Um, where we're, we're pushing to have a new category established as well as um, work with specific insurers. So, you know, I, I know there are a couple of pharma players on your cap table, you know, even from the early days. And, you know, this is probably does not apply to you guys directly as a Keeley, as a, you know, I would say a true PDT. But where I've been grappling a bit, I mean, uh, again, as you guys are exploring the real health consumer and how does an individual interact with what you call the treatment system, and that includes my caregivers, et cetera, versus... Um, I would say the molecular world and the pharma world, what you just talked about earlier, is the novel DTX company that know the experience of the end consumer going to swallow the pill inside that experience? Mm -hmm. Or will pharma companies eventually, you know, I don't know, maybe one of them will purchase you uh, as a Keeley, right? As an additional <laughs> revenue stream. And, yeah. and where do you see that in the spectrum? Um, great question, man. I... I don't want to profess to have like a the answer or to have even an extremely strong point of view of exactly how this will play out. There are a couple of things I see pretty clearly. The first is digital therapeutics is a new pillar. It's an independent pillar. And what that means is, and I've been extremely public about this, um, what that means is the pharmaceutical company is not necessary for the growth of this industry. And I think early on, one of the biggest questions people would ask, you know, I'm on panels or, or doing interviews like this and people would say, okay, so, you know, have you gotten any pharmaceutical companies so that the business model can succeed? Like that, that was a cause and effect mm -hmm. relationship yep. in their mind. Um, and I've, you know, I've pushed back on that pretty heavily. And I think we've seen now with prescription digital therapeutics and digital therapeutics broadly, that doesn't need to be the case. So it's independent. It's a new pillar. Now, that actually is interesting because it now leads to a number of different solutions of how this could roll out. So for instance, I actually think you're going to have pharmaceutical companies that never get into digital therapeutics. Uh, everyone's getting into digital, but that never yeah. decide, no, just like some pharmaceutical companies don't do biologics, just like some pharmaceutical companies don't do diagnostics. I think you'll have some that don't get into the digital therapeutics. I think you'll have others that do and probably acquire companies or start to develop capabilities in-house. And frankly, I think in the slightly longer time frame, you will have digital first companies that start to develop pharmaceuticals. And then I think you'll have partnerships with standalone companies. So I actually think there's no one model. I think when you have two independent pillars, there's lots of different ways that can combine in the marketplace. And I think that's what we'll see. 
You know, uh, it, it's interesting you called it an independent pillar, right? Because obviously many pharma companies, and I just simply call it, you know, cuddling with DTX companies or DTX companies cuddling with, with pharma either way. And, and it actually does work. And there is a molecule or drug plus relationship. Um, and then to your point, there are, you know, as I think Brian loves to call this, you know, PDTs, right? Prescription digital therapeutics uh, that, that I think he's, you know, very much into. And there's that to me of a little bit of that in between what, what I think the term has been kind of disease management 2.0, right? It's the combination of services, digital technologies. Some of them might be DTX inside. And by the way, molecules are part of that, right? If we rewind back 10, 12 years ago, disease management has been, uh, you know, different programs around it. And I think we've been, it's been famous around uh, diabetes. Where, where does your thought process around, I'll call it PDTs, drug plus, or disease management 2.0? <laughs> um, well, that's a, that's a tough one because I don't think those boundaries are extremely clear. I do think the, the clear boundaries- That's exactly are, my point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's like a false, a false premise, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, here, answer this maze puzzle. Uh, yep. So- I think the clear bound, the clearest boundary there is PDT is alone versus combination products with drugs, right? Because yep. that's clear. The regulatory class is different. The capabilities it takes to develop those products is different. So that's a clearish line. I think the less clear line is disease management because I think what we're all going to learn, and we've already invested here, is that in the same way that we've learned that a pill out on an island doesn't really serve patients in the fullest way, you know, here, go home and take this pill and let's see what happens in a couple months. That's changing and has changed in the last decade pretty dramatically. I think we should learn from that. And I think digital therapeutics need to have some of these uh, care management components with them as well, right? I already described how, you know, we have products for both the patient and caregivers. We also have a, what I call, um, or I'm sorry, what our business calls Achilles care, which is a humans, a support team that can help patients. So we're deploying in some ways, a care model along with our digital therapeutic as a support. I think we will see that a lot more now. Every company won't be able to invest in that, right? Cause it, in some ways it doubles your investment <laughs> if you're yep. from just yep. developing the core product. But I do think that the, whoever ends up distributing it, whether it's partnerships or whether it's a company like ours alone, I do think you're going to see more of a convergence there where, you know, it's, it's the beauty and the obligation in my mind of digital to make use of the data and the connection and the experience you have with patients. And that lends itself so cleanly to some of these care type platforms. The difference is, I think there's a lot of value starting with the treatment product so that you understand what's the direct effect you're having with the patient and then build around it versus the opposite, right? Yep. We're going to build a holistic solution and then somehow back into the treatment. That's just not my general way of thinking. I like to start with the with the core issue for the patient. So you refer to human beings, which is why you know why you're doing this. This is for for us, the humans, uh, and not just the patients, but the caregivers. And and obviously, you went the FDA route, so the docs are a given from a prescription perspective. But let's go, you know, nurses and uh, even you know, selfishly with with your coach, we're. Um, you know, around the health coaching perspective itself. So human support, human beings around your product, where do you see that going? Um, it's, it's critical. I do think humans, not just in the loop, but as part of the experience, again, digital 
you know, some people have the nihilistic view that digital cuts out the human, but what I love, and I think you love and believe in is digital can actually strengthen human relationships, yep. right? It yep. can bring people together and it can magnify or have synergy. That's certainly how, how we're going about this. So I think there's actually humans involved for us on the front end and back end. And what I mean by that is certainly prescribers, which today are doctors, physicians. I believe that with digital, we're going to have the opportunity to broaden the prescriber and prescribing ability to other healthcare practitioners, you know, psychologists, coaches, people who are really intimately involved in care and this democratization of care that's happening in healthcare. That's a little bit of an ambition and aspirational because it's not happening today. But I do think digital with our safety profile will actually have the potential to enable a broader set of prescribers. So I think that's at the front end, what we're going to see happen here with digital. At the back end, I think there's a whole world of how you engage coaches, psychologists, and other practitioners, therapists in the longer term care of a patient when you can have a really strong digital treatment at the beginning of that plan. So what I mean by that is sometimes what happens is, you know, it's, there's this like false premise put up of an either, or it's like, okay, you either go the human coaching psychologist mm -hmm. route. And maybe if that doesn't work, then you go to a pharmaceutical or a treatment. But I actually think what digital in our model enables is we're doing the treatment directly first. People may or may not be in coaching or therapy, but the treatment is like direct, it's acute. And what it's doing is changing neural processing for people. It's changing their cognitive function and their ability. Then you bring on top of that a longer term coaching or a therapist or psychologist or physician engagement. And it should theoretically actually have a much better effect and lead to longer term engagement and retention. So I think it's good for the business model. I think it's good for those individual humans outside the business model. Exactly how we get there and make it happen, I think, is still TBD, honestly. Absolutely. And since we're speaking about humans, and I think the point of this podcast is get to know the humans, you know, behind these companies um, and the trailblazers. So we started with brought you there, but I guess, you know, my big question always uh, is what's your why? What makes you get up in the morning? <laughs> I love that. Um, our, my why, and I know Achille as a business is why, um, but I'll, I'll stay with myself, is what we can do for people. In, in the world. So our patients, but what I mean by that is I get motivated, not just by the, the clinical outcome, you know, exactly how does this help people in their daily life, which we see. But if you, you know, for instance, watch the testimonials on, on patients using Endeavor, you hear two things. You hear the specific clinical benefits. Oh, I'm, you know, doing X, Y, and Z better in daily life, but you also hear an empowerment. Mm -hmm. So there, the many of patient populations that digital therapeutics are going after have been marginalized. They haven't felt supported by the current medical system. Um, they felt like the medical system is, you know, a lesser evil sometimes, or it's something that they hope to avoid. And I think when they're brought digital treatments that have an, an experience up front, to use your words, yeah. that engage them, that are really open and transparent with data. Um, I think patients are starting to feel supported. So they get benefits and they feel an empowerment. And in our case, you know, we're, I have a soft spot for children and we're, you know, we're working with children eight to 12 years old who typically have felt like they're, they're struggling. They're not supported. They, they feel like they may not be succeeding in life. 
And when you can see that turn in, in people, when you can see them saying, not only am I getting better here, but I have a new lease on life as a child, it's hard to get more motivated uh, than to help people like that. So we at Achille, we have a saying a lot that we say, um, the patient at the table, um, which means when we're having a discussion around a table and on any business area, what would the patient in the table think? What would the patient in the table want if they're at the table with us? And I think that's a, it's a guiding principle, but it really is why we're all, why we're all here and doing what we do. Love it. And certainly that passion exudes. So thank you very much, Eddie, for making the time. And I'm sure our listeners learned a lot from you. Awesome. Thanks, Eugene. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission-Based Media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dillon's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.